I'm curious. Raise your hand if you shared a positive experience. Raise your hand if you shared a negative experience. That pretty evenly split. But you just demonstrated that you already know the power of organizational culture and that it impacts every single person who comes into contact with it. So we asked you Kurt, to before, Sorry, before you go on, I just want, would mention, if you haven't found a seat yet and you would like one, there are a bunch of them up here in the first 10 rows. Uh, feel free to come on up and grab a seat. We've asked you to talk about culture but we haven't defined it yet. As good Lutherans, we cannot let that stand. We're gonna go and do some definitions now. But if you haven't picked up, Eric and I are making you do a lot of work. So what I'd like you to do again is turn to that partner and discuss what is organizational culture. What do you think? I'll give you a few minutes to share. What is organizational culture? Go ahead. Wow, this is a good crowd. You take directions well. That will be important later. I've literally asked this question to thousands of individuals and in workshops all over the world. And this slide kind of represents things we usually hear. Unwritten norms of behavior, shared values, traditions, beliefs, assumptions, our vibe, our group personality, how we do things here. Raise your hand if you and your partners talked about something you see up there or close to it. Oh, an advanced group, I like that. So you're ready for the advanced topic. Here's an academic definition of culture. This is from uh, Professor Ed Schein, who used to teach at MIT, and this is what he said culture is, organizational culture. A, par a pattern of shared basic assumptions that the group has learned is it solved its problems of external adaptation and internal integration that has worked well enough to be considered valid and therefore to be taught to new members as the correct way to perceive, think, and feel in relation to those problems. Which is a mouthful. In one breath, let's hear it for them. Ah. <laughs> and it is a mouthful, but we can still pull some information out of this. The first thing to note is that Professor Shine says, it's shared basic assumptions. Things that we don't have to think about, we, all, we just know because this is how we think in our subconscious. And it's learned as we have shared experience solving problems. And it's been validated by results. It worked, so we keep on doing it. And it's also taught to new members. It can be verbal, nonverbal, but we pass it on. And here's the kicker. We pass it on because it's the right way to do things. That's a pretty good definition. We can get some information out of it. But I like to keep things simple. So here's a simpler definition that we'll be using throughout our discussion today. Culture is the shared thought habits that frame the way we behave and work together. Let's break this down a little bit. Thought habits, could be good, could be not so good. Shared, in common, that's who we are as a group. This framing, frame's an important word in this definition. You could think of a frame of a picture on the wall. Inside is the art, outside isn't. Sometimes you need that frame to let you know. 
cultures like that. Inside this frame of our shared thought habits is who we are. Over there, that's not us. You can also think of frame as in a frame of a house or a piece of equipment. I look at that wall, there's a frame behind it, even if I can't see it. And if that wall has a poor frame, we're in trouble. We can't really go and build well. Cultures like that, whether you see it directly or not, it's there and you are building on that culture as you try to get things done. Well, that applies to culture because culture is our shared thought habits. The way we think is just the way we play the game. And that's why culture is so powerful. That's why we can go and impact what we can get done, our willingness to take on additional tasks, even the joy we have in taking on those tasks by looking and intentionally designing our culture. Now that we have perhaps a, a little bit better grasp on what organizational culture is, that it's these thoughts that lead to behaviors and those behaviors lead to results, I'd like to share with you a story of a time when my family was very powerfully impacted by an organization's culture. In the spring of 2017, my 12-year-old daughter began experiencing headaches. The doctors weren't sure what the cause was, whether it was migraines or maybe it was stress-related. They, they couldn't quite figure it out. Throughout the summer, those headaches, be, they got worse and worse, and by fall, she was missing quite a bit of school. She was just in so much pain. But she soldiered on, and here's Riley on her 12th birthday, her golden birthday, October 12th. About three weeks after this picture was taken on November 2nd, we went to see Riley's neurologist. As we were describing Riley's symptoms, I could tell the doctor did not like what she was hearing. And I became even more concerned when she picked up a phone right there in the examination room and started calling around Milwaukee to see if there was anyone who could get her in for an MRI that day. Well, he did find a place, and we drove across to the other side of Milwaukee, had the MRI scan, the neurologist looked at it, called us, and said, I'm afraid I have some bad news. Riley has a significant tumor at the base of her brain. I'd like you to drive to Children's Hospital of Wisconsin in Milwaukee, go straight to the emergency room, and there will be a team waiting for you there. Well, none of that sounded good to me either. And of course, when we arrived at Children's, our, our minds were just spinning. But thankfully, the crew that met us in the emergency room knew just what to do and how to handle it. They were incredibly kind and compassionate, patient. And you know, if you've ever checked into a hospital, what that can be like, but not in this case. In this case, they got us right into an examination room. And there we met Dr. Kim. She is a pediatric neurosurgeon. Dr. Kim showed us Riley's scan, showed us the tumor, and explained she'd like to do surgery the next day to remove that tumor. I can remember Dr. Kim was very professional, you could tell her competency just by the way she spoke, but she was also very compassionate, very kind, and took all the time she needed to answer our questions. She was never in a hurry to leave the room. But she did eventually leave. And after she left, Riley, who had been remarkably stoic this whole time, started to tear up. And when I asked her what was wrong, she said, I don't want to die. And that's when we really realized how serious 
this was. That was a long night in the hospital. Here's Mary, my wife, and Riley waiting for surgery the next day. The following day, we had Riley taken into surgery around 1 in the afternoon. Dr. Kim said she thought the surgery would last about four hours. They took us to the waiting room at Children's. It was filled with parents whose children were having procedures, and the wonderful woman behind the desk could not have been nicer. She showed us where we could put our things, where we could sit, and she told us about a digital display on the wall that listed all the procedures that were going on, and we could use a code she gave us to look up there and get updates on what was happening. At about 4.30, we got a call in the waiting room from the surgical team. They explained that the surgery was going well, they had almost all of the tumor removed, and they thought that it would take about one more hour before they were done. 5.30 came and went. 6.30, 7.30, Now I knew not only had something gone wrong, something must have gone terribly wrong. And by this time, the waiting room looked like it does in this picture. All the other parents were gone, their procedures were completed, even the woman behind the desk had left, but not before she came over to make sure we had everything we needed before she left. About 9.30, Dr. Kim came into the waiting room along with what turned out to be a second surgeon that had had to be called in. They sat Mary and me down and explained that inexplicably, during the surgery, Riley's, the front of Riley's brain began hemorrhaging badly. So they had had to turn her over so they could open up the front part of her brain and release the pressure, close that, turn her back over, and finish the removal of the tumor, which is why it had taken so long. I can remember those two doctors after an incredibly intense day, who were no doubt exhausted, spent 45 minutes with Mary and me to make sure that all of our questions were answered. They had put Riley into a medical, medically induced coma because they wanted time for the brain to settle down. Their concern was their, that her brain had been under so much pressure and they weren't sure how much, if any, damage had been done to her brain. And we wouldn't know that until she was brought out of the coma. Finally, they took us up to the ICU to see Riley. And I remember walking into the room, there were about a dozen people around her bed, hooking her up to different machines. All of them were very intense, very focused, and clearly very competent. It was when we walked around the foot of the bed and got our first look at Riley that we realized the extent of what was going on, because what had been intended to be a small incision in the back of her head had turned into something, oh, by the way, this is the digital display of that board at 8.30 that night. Ours was the only procedure left. When we came around the foot of bed and, and saw Riley, we saw that this had become something far more serious than we had first thought. We spent most of the next couple of days praying because there really wasn't anything else we could do. We were hoping the pressure in him, her brain wouldn't increase and that when she came out of the coma, she would be okay. This whole time, while she was in that coma, every single doctor and every single nurse was just as wonderful as the last. All of them 
were clearly competent, but they were also incredibly kind and compassionate. They wanted us only to think about Riley and nothing else. I can remember one evening that sticks in my head. That day, it was a few days after her surgery, we noticed some fluid was building up in the, on her forehead. So we asked the doctor about it. He came and looked. He said, I don't think it's anything serious, but we'll keep an eye on it. Well, about three in the morning, when I was alone with Riley in that room, my mind started spinning. You know, I figured we had waited too long to get an MRI and should have done that earlier in the summer. Now, what if this was serious? What if it was something that was going to harm Riley? And what if I didn't say anything? So I went out into the nurse's station. And at that time, it's very dim and super quiet. And there's one nurse behind the desk. I went up and told her my concerns. And she could have said, well, the doctor told you it's not serious and they'd keep an eye on it. She didn't say that. I'll never forget the look of compassion on her face when she looked at me because she knew this was a dad who was in full panic mode. She said, I will send in the surgeon who's on duty tonight. And a few minutes later, he came in, took a look, and assured me that it wasn't anything serious. Now, that's just one story, but there were dozens and dozens of those while Riley was at Children's Hospital. A few days after the surgery, they brought her out of her coma. We were thankful she was alive, but she was unable to drink or eat or speak. She couldn't even sit up, much less stand. And that's when we met another team of rock stars who were the therapists who came in. And they worked with Riley day after day, teaching her how to drink, how to eat, how to talk, how to sit up, how to walk. And every one of them was just as wonderful as the last. Every one of them not only was, worked patiently with Riley and pushed her to get better and better, but they were all really funny, had great senses of humor, and kept things light in a very serious situation. Riley was at Children's for about a month, and she got better and better well enough that she was able to come home. And so we took Riley home, and that's when we would go back three times a week for more therapy and met another great group of rock stars, the outpatient therapists, who kept working with Riley for about six months to get her better and better. Now, everyone that we worked with at Children's, from the doctors, to the nurses, to the inpatient therapists, to the outpatient therapists, even the person that we talked to about billing was awesome. All of them were focused on one thing, getting Riley better and taking our minds off of everything but Riley. And thanks to their great work and God's blessing, today Riley is a healthy and happy 17-year-old who loves nothing better than to be in horse shows with her good friend, Blue. She's a sophomore, a junior this year at Luther Prep, and we're so thankful for every day that we have with her. Now, why have I told you this story? Because Children's Hospital of Milwaukee has an amazing organizational culture. And it mattered. It meant that in the hardest time of our lives, they made things more bearable. Culture 
matters. Thank you, Eric. What a vivid example of culture's impact. What attributes did you hear in that story about Children's Hospital? Care, concern, patience, compassion. And it didn't affect just Riley, but Eric, Mary, Riley's brother Reese. That's the power of organizational culture at its very best. What we'd like you to do now is turn to your partner and consider this. What are three desirable attributes for a congregational culture that can have an impact, that can make a difference in the lives of people in your congregation and the community? We're going to be a few minutes to discuss that with your partner. Raise your hand if you identified something that you think would be pretty impactful. Raise your hand if anything you talked about might have echoed some of the characteristics you saw at Children's Hospital. Now, while we're talking about Children's, raise your hand if you really like what you heard about Children's. <laughs> yeah, I think every hand was up. Why not? There's a lot to like there. Here's the thing, that awesome culture at Children's Hospital was no accident, and I know that for a fact. And the reason I know that is because several of my colleagues at the culture shaping firm I work at has been working with Children's Hospital for over 10 years to create their organizational culture, to build it and strengthen it. So I first heard Riley's story last Ash Wednesday. I remember it because I was there with Children's Hospital as a last-minute sub. It was the first time I ever worked with them, so the culture wasn't my, my work. But I was a last-minute COVID sub for some stuff we were doing with them, and so I decided to go up to Eric's church in Menominee Falls to worship with him. He was kind of surprised because a guy from Michigan was there in his church on Ash Wednesday, a little bit unusual. And so he said, what are you doing here? And I said, I'm in Milwaukee working with Children's Hospital. He goes, those guys are incredible. They have an amazing culture. And I said, tell me more. <laughs> and I got to hear Riley's story and how the doctors were awesome and the, everyone was awesome. So with his permission, I said, I'd like to share that with the people at Children's tomorrow. See, what I was doing at Children's Hospital, I was working with a group of employees at Children's Hospital, doctors, nurses, and others, who were going to lead culture sessions internal to the company. And they had been in training for several months, probably about 80 to 100 hours at that point, and they were going to do their first presentation live for a culture session. And they're always nervous. So I figured I would tell them Riley's story to help them focus. So I talked about how Eric's eyes lit up and and Riley's story and how the doctors were awesome and the nurses were, often, were awesome and inpatient and even billing. Billing was awesome. And then one of the doctors simply said, that's 
why I'm a facilitator. That's why he was willing to spend a lot of hours on a very busy schedule to develop the skills and then more days out of his schedule to lead workshops because he understood the impact that their culture work could have. That list of attributes that you came up with that last paired share, if you'd like to have some of those for your congregation, then you need to understand one very specific thing. Awesome cultures are never happy accidents. They are the product of intentional and deliberate actions to envision and build and strengthen that culture. And if you don't have your culture lens on looking at things all the time, you might not even see the issues or opportunities that represents. Culture is our shared thought habits. A lot of it's below the conscious level and it just shows up and you can't see it. And if you don't see it, you don't notice it, you can't consider doing something different, and so it keeps up popping up and popping up again even though we don't see it. And you'll have an accidental culture. And those accidental cultures can show up in some sort of interesting ways in congregations. Here's an example. Now, I'm confident none of you here would want this as part of your congregational culture. Raise, raise your hand if infighting made the list you came up with. <laughs> I see you have no hands there. And yet, at a church I was working with a few years ago, I was there to help them discuss sort of the direction they wanted to go with their ministry. And in that conversation, I mentioned how important their reputation in their community was when it comes to outreach. So I asked, uh, what do you think your reputation is in the community? And without hesitation, someone said, oh, we're known as the church where everyone fights with each other. <laughs> Not going to be easy to invite your neighbor to church on Christmas Eve if they think you're the church where everyone fights with each other. So obviously nobody wants infighting as a cultural attribute, but sometimes it's an attribute that seems to have some good things going for it, but maybe some unintended consequences as well. Here's an example, frugal. I like frugal. I answer to it. I'll also answer to cheap, but I prefer the term frugal. <laughs> and for my way of thinking, it is chock full of benefits. Good stewardship, doing more with less. I like frugal. I also enjoy frugality. You can ask anyone who knows me. Uh, we're the family that when we first moved back to Wisconsin, we, we would my wife and I and our two kids who were in fifth and second grade would go to Culver's and order two children's meals to split between the four of us. Half a hamburger, half the fries, and you get the free custard. So I like frugality. But even I was not prepared for something I ran into in my very first congregation. I had only been there for a couple of months, and I thought, I should have business cards made. Seems like a good idea, so the next church council meeting, I brought it up, I said, could I have $50 to have business cards printed? After about a half hour conversation, <laughs> the council voted no. <laughs> Why? 
because one of the councilmen had volunteered that he would make business cards for me on his home computer and print them on his home printer. Now, keep in mind, this is 1998, which meant it was entirely possible that I would have business cards that were, had perforated edges and dot matrix printing. So the, the first time I heard that story, I wondered, what were they thinking? And I said, well, they, they must have been in tight financial conditions, right, Eric? And he said, no, $130,000 to bank, budget on track. What gives? And when Kurt asked me that, I, I guess I had never thought about it before, but the answer came immediately to mind. About a decade before I arrived, that congregation was in dire financial straits. I heard stories of when one of the members donated his homemade wine for communion because they couldn't afford to buy communion wine. <clears throat> I heard stories that on multiple occasions, the treasurer would get up after worship, hold up the electric bill, and say, would anyone be able to volunteer to pay this? We don't have money in the checking account. So that was a thought habit, maybe formed, maybe super strengthened in a time where it was survival. That's a pretty strong thought habit. Pretty strong as far as it's going to show up all the time. And pretty strong that everyone's thinking that way, and sometimes it's going to be tough to even see it. And so you'll have eight people talk for 30 minutes about reducing a $50 bill because it makes sense to them, because that's who they are. That's how they thought, and that's how they played the game. So frugal is good until maybe it isn't. But it's tough to notice when that thought habit is operating underneath our, our conscious radar. Here's another characteristic of cultures. I assume it's present in many of our congregations. Servant leadership. And I want to state for the record, I am all in on servant leadership as a critical, healthy aspect of an awesome culture. I suspect more than one breakout and more than one keynote will have this phrase mentioned at least once, maybe multiple times. And it makes sense. Because when you think of the characteristics of servant leadership, you know, some that come to mind are humility, putting others before yourself, and the greatest example of that, the perfect example of that, was our Savior. So we'll want to emulate that. Here's a question, though. How do your servant leaders show up in your congregation? In other words, what does a servant leader actually do? Does a servant leader mow the lawn? Does a servant leader set up folding chairs? Does a servant leader sweep the fellowship hall? Maybe. Certainly they would want to be willing to do that. But is that what they ought to be doing? Remember back in the book of Acts in the early Christian church in Jerusalem? when they were having trouble feeding the widows in the congregation, and the apostles appointed some men to supervise the logistics of feeding those widows. And they did that so they would have time for prayer 
and the ministry of the word. In other words, it wasn't that the apostles weren't willing to wait on tables. It's just that if they had done that, they wouldn't have as much time to do the things that they were trained for and called to do. You know, it's been interesting. Kurt and I have been to dozens of Wells congregations in the last couple of years doing everyone outreach workshops. And something we've noticed is that the role of the pastor has been different in different congregations. In some congregations, the pastor is our main point of contact prior to the workshop. And he's the one who does all of the logistics to set up the workshop, including setting up chairs. And in one congregation, the pastor left the workshop a little early before lunch to go pick up the lunch and bring it back. In other congregations, the pastor was our main point of contact, but he had a committee of lay people who assisted him in the logistics. And in still other congregations, it was a lay person who was our main point of contact, and all the pastor did is show up and participate at the workshop. So, which of those is best? I have no idea. <laughs> I, I don't know your worship setting and your situation. In some setting, it's perfectly reasonable for the pastor to do all of the logistics and set up all the chairs. Perfectly reasonable. But in other places, it might be that by him doing that, he's not doing other things he's uniquely called and trained to do. As Eric said, we're not saying do this or do that. We're saying use your culture lens. Notice the thought habit. Consider. Pastor Sim said, are you putting a lot of stuff on your plate like Moses? And I'm not just talking to pastors. I'm talking to every leader in this room. Are you saying yes when you would be a better servant leader if you said no? Would you be a better servant leader if you accepted something that wasn't exactly what you wanted, but that way someone else could do it? and they could serve and use their gifts. Would you be a better servant leader if you said, well, then we just won't do this if no one wants to? And as Kurt said, it's not a matter of what should you be doing. We're not here to tell you what to do and what your servant leader should do. The question is this. Is the way your servant leaders lead and serve, is it accidental or is it intentional? Is it just the way it is, or the way it's always been, or have you carefully thought through the best use of you as leaders, your time, your talents, and your callings? So we've looked at some attributes, some clearly accidental, such as infighting, some other ones that are really fantastic but might have unintended consequences. How are we doing for time? Well, we're doing good. All right, I'm going to give you a lot of time for this last paired share. I'm going to give you 10 minutes. And before you start on that, let me go and set this up. I want you to share three thought habits, not currently in your congregation, that would be worth intentionally and deliberately cultivating. I don't know what those are going to be for you. I suspect some of the overachievers in the room are going to get done before the 10 minutes. So I have some additional things you can think about. One, you don't have to stop at three. You can come up with more. Two, if you've got a pretty thorough list and you're not going to pursue it anymore, then maybe have a discussion of how God might bless your ministry if you could cultivate those thought habits. And if you get that done as well, 
then you can discuss how you might be able to go and bring that discussion back to your congregation. I'm sure that will fill the rest of the 10 minutes. Raise your hand if you had an interesting conversation. <laughs> Thank you. Raise your hand if you identified something that might be worth pursuing a little bit more. Eric and I were hoping you'd raise your hand for that question. Before we conclude our discussion, I'd like to go back to Children's Hospital one more time. That, that one time when I interact with them, that, that same day where I first shared Riley's story with the group of facilitators, at the end of the day, after they had coached their first culture session, one of the facilitators came up to me and she said, I have a story that speaks to why I want to be a facilitator and work on our culture, and I'd like to share it with you. And then she said, it's still a little raw. I don't know I could use it in a session, but I want you to hear it before you leave. And then she told me that she was on call the day the horrors of the Waukesha Christmas Parade occurred. For those of you who don't recall immediately what that is, an individual drove his SUV through a Christmas parade, killed six people, and injured dozens and dozens of others, including children. And my eyes got big because until that moment, I hadn't thought about the fact that Children's Hospital is only 15 miles away from that parade. And she told me when that news hit the airwaves, they had people who weren't working that day arriving. Everyone was arriving, all the doctors, the nurses, because they knew what that news meant. And with tears in her eyes, she talked about doctors and nurses going into surgery and coming out and turning around and prepping and doing it again and coming out and doing it again. And then she said, we were at our best that day. That's why culture is important. And realize, at your best was a really rich phrase for Children's Hospital. Their motto is children, or kids deserve the best. Kids deserve the best. Their purpose is to give children the best possible care and the best possible support to children and their families. And their culture is intentionally designed so they can bring their best selves to work every day, even on the worst day. And that's why culture is important to them because it helps them fulfill their very purpose, the reason they exist. Brothers and sisters, if a healthy organizational culture could be that important for a hospital, how important is it for your congregation? Wouldn't it be awesome if your congregation's culture was so wonderful that a person who visited it was bragging about it 10 years later. The truth is, your congregation is a spiritual hospital for the people in your community. And the care that you give their souls is going to not just impact them in time, but for eternity.
And that is why culture matters. In fact, it is critical. Thank you very much.